your Bibles today, if you would, to Matthew chapter 11, and we will continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Uh, From time to time, I like to remind you of the reason that our church is called the Berean Baptist Church. Uh, Several times in the last few years, there have been people that have come to me, people that are visiting, and they say, what does the name Berean mean? What is that? What's that about? And I had a person a couple of years ago ask me, well, uh, Berean Baptist Church, are, are Bereans, Berean Baptists, is that some special kind of Baptist? And I like to think that we are very special Baptist. As you know, Baptists come in all different kinds of varieties. Um, I think uh, Baskin-Robbins has 28, what do they have, 28, 32? I don't know how many how many flavors Baskin-Robbins has, and I know that Heinz has 57 varieties. Uh, but Baptists come in a great deal of varieties. Uh, Baptists can be very different depending on where you are. And you can look at our congregation. You can see we can come in a lot of different sizes. Uh, we are uh, different from each other in that way. But when you see the name Baptist on a church sign, that's not a 100% guarantee that the church that you would be attending would be just like one that you find in Santa Rosa or one in Petaluma or uh, in some other place, in any other place of the country for that matter. It's not a guarantee that we're going to be exactly alike, and that's because Baptist churches believe in the autonomy of the individual church. That means that we don't answer to a governing body. We don't um, have a pope over us. We don't have a synod. Uh, We govern ourselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So we don't have presbyters, as some churches do. But we find our authority for the church in the Bible and in the Bible alone. Now, the reason that we're called Berean Baptist Church is simply because that is a name that we've chosen. And it's a name that comes out of Scripture. It comes from a city called Berea, where Paul preached the gospel of Christ, and the people that were in that city were very diligent about teaching the scriptures. They believed in preaching from the Bible, and they always looked for the truth of God's word. Now, I don't want to narrow that down just a bit, because when we talk about what does the Bible say, we're talking about a very big book. Uh, You may have a copy of the Bible, something like mine. This is about eight or 900 pages. And depending upon the size of the type in your Bible, it might be much larger. Uh, Bob's not here today, but if you look at his Bible, he has the huge words. And so uh, his copy may be about 15,000 pages or more. I don't know. It just depends on the size of the type. But it is a very big book. But if you wanted to distill all the information of the Bible down into one story... Or what is the Bible about? It is the story of one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul was preaching in the Greek city of Thessalonica, and he took the Bible, and he showed the people some very important truths concerning Jesus. Now, I just want to read to you from the 17th chapter of Acts, just a moment here. It says, And Paul, as his manner was, went into them, and three days, Sabbath, three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Now, Paul there is preaching in the synagogue in Thessalonica, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. Paul preached that Christ died for our sins. He arose from the grave. And very importantly, he said, This Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. Christ. 
And that word means Messiah. Christ and Messiah mean the same. Jesus is the one that God promised would come into the world to save his people from their sins. In fact, in the beginning of Matthew, in chapter 1, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her that she would have a son, and he said, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so that's what Jesus came into the world to do. And many people that were in the city of Thessalonica that were listening to the Apostle Paul tell them who Jesus was, didn't believe it, and so they forced him out of that city. And the next place that Paul went to was a city called Berea. And there Paul preached the same message. He preached about the Messiah. And the Bereans did something that the others didn't do. They searched the scriptures to find out if what Paul said about Jesus Christ matched what the Old Testament scriptures had to say about the Messiah. Was Jesus everything that the Bible had written about? Was he truly the Savior of the world? And so that is the purpose of our church. This is why we preach from the Bible. It's why we use it. We search the scriptures in order to prove Jesus is the Messiah. And so we call ourselves Bereans. We search the scriptures. Now that brings me to our text in Matthew chapter 11, and I'll show you in a little while why what I've just read is important to us. If you'd stand with me, please, once again, in reverence for reading of God's word. We look at Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse number 1. And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today, and we ask you, Lord, you'd speak to our hearts and show us what you'd have for us from the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. This is the third time that we've looked at this passage, and I want to just briefly set the stage for you as we look at the final message on these verses. This part of the scripture is about a person that had doubt, uh, a man who doubted whether Jesus was truly the Messiah. And this man was not like those unbelieving Jews that Paul preached to in the synagogues. He was not an obstinate man. He wasn't an outright objector to those claims. But rather, he was a special prophet that was sent from God. He was a chosen prophet. In fact, this man, the Bible says, was full of the Holy Spirit from the time that he was in his mother's womb. He was a man that had been called for God's purpose, and that purpose was to announce that the Messiah had come. Now, I'm sure that you recognize that what we're talking about here is the man is John the Baptist. And if you want to know where Baptist got their name, it's taken from the work of this man. John baptized people, and he baptized people that believed that God saves people in only one way, and that is through belief in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And in the first message, as we talked about John the Baptist, we learned about the career of the Baptist. What happened during John's life? 
And we looked at his miraculous birth. We saw how that he was chosen by God. We studied how he began his ministry just before Jesus did. We learned that he lived in the desert, that he was an outdoorsman, that he ate grasshoppers. He wore a rough camel hide coat. That was his clothing. We also learned that he was a fearless preacher and that he baptized Jesus and he pointed to Jesus and said, here is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We also learned that John was put into prison for being outspoken about sin. He offended the Roman ruler because he preached against his sin. And so Herod had, had, had put John into a prison, into a deep, dark prison near the Dead Sea. And there, in a short time, John was beheaded for standing up for truth. So John did his job well. He obeyed God. He did everything that God told him to do, and he did it without question. But John actually did have a question, and his question was a very serious one. It wasn't about his ministry, because he was very sure about what God wanted him to do, but he became unsure about something that was very important and was integral to the announcement that Jesus was the Messiah. So we started to look then, secondly, at the concerns of John the Baptist. What was he so concerned about concerning Jesus? Well, we find in verse number 3 that while he was in prison, he sent some of his followers to find Jesus and to ask him, Are you the one that should come, or do we look for another? And that question can only be interpreted in one way. John asked, Was I right when I said that you are the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? Was I right to tell people that you actually are the Messiah? And that would seem to be a very peculiar question coming from this man named John, this man who's called by God, someone who was unwavering in his convictions, a man that followed God, a man who did everything God told him to do. How could a man like that have doubts about Jesus? Well, he had his reasons, and they're not much different from any Christian that tries to do his best to obey God, that tries to be a good servant of God, and yet finds himself in terrible circumstances, adverse circumstances. John was put into prison, and the plain, simple truth of it is that Jesus had done nothing to get John out of prison. Jesus knew about it, but Jesus left him there. And that just didn't fit in with John's idea of what the Messiah would do. He doubted about Jesus because he had misconceptions about uh, what the Messiah would do when he came in his first advent. He was expecting that Jesus would begin his kingdom on earth right then and that he would relieve the oppression of the Jewish people. And so he certainly knew that Jesus had the power, if he truly was the Messiah, to deliver him from that prison. So he was looking for Jesus to begin a physical kingdom on earth at that time. But I think that if John knew what we know now, if John had lived to go beyond the cross, if he could have seen the death of Christ and could have seen that Jesus arose from the grave, that he never would have asked this question. He never would have sent disciples to ask, are you the one? Are you really the Messiah? So John doubted because he thought the Messiah would come with vengeance and he would deliver the people. But he was wrong about that, and so he was left in the prison. So there were doubts that came to John's mind, and he wasn't quite sure if Jesus was perhaps just another prophet like him. 
He doubted because he thought that maybe another prophet had been sent besides him to actually announce the coming of the Messiah and that Jesus was that prophet. He never doubted that Jesus came from God. He just began to come to a place where he misunderstood exactly who Jesus was and what his ministry was all about. Well, there was an answer to John's question, and that's what we're going to look at today. We want to look a little bit further into this. The, the confirmation for the Baptist is what I want to talk to you about today. What did Jesus say to John the Baptist that put his fears aside, put his doubts aside, and caused him to understand that Jesus truly was the Messiah? Well, the disciples of John came to Jesus. They found him, and they said, Are you the Messiah? Now, let's observe the answer that Jesus gave. In verse number 4, Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now, how would you expect that... Jesus would prove that he was the Christ. If someone were to come to you and ask you, how do you know that Jesus is really your Savior? What's the first thing that you would say? Well, the first thing that I would say, I would know that Jesus is my Savior because he saved me. I know that there's something very different about me since I met Christ. There's something different since I believed in him. And so I would say that the very first thing that we would do is that we would make an appeal to personal experience. That if I'm asked, how do you know that Jesus is the Savior, that I'm going to look at the personal experience that I have of knowing him. Now, obviously, Jesus could not say to these disciples, go and tell John that I am the Messiah and I was saved by me. Well, that doesn't make very much sense. Uh, It wouldn't make sense for Jesus to appeal to personal salvation because he didn't need personal salvation. He didn't need to save himself. But he did say to these disciples, go and tell John what you have heard and seen. Go and tell him what you have experienced. Now, there was something going on when Jesus preached. People were quite different before they heard him and after they heard him. They came to him one way. People came to him blind and crippled. They were lepers. They were deaf. And they even brought dead people to him. And now those people are a different way. They're changed from what they were before. Now the blind can see and now the lame can walk. Now lepers are cleansed. Now the deaf can hear and people that were dead are now alive. And this is what happens when a person comes to know Christ. There's a great change that takes place. And I would ask you about your testimony. Are you a different person than you were before? I mean, if there's anything that we should have learned from our study thus far in the book of Matthew, it is that when Christ saves a person, that he makes him a very different person. He makes him different from what he was. He has a desire to be like Christ. It changes you from being lost and without hope. It changes you to a person that is forgiven, someone who is cleansed from all of your sins. It changes you from someone who has no hope at all to someone who has hope of eternal life by believing in Christ. So it changes the person. It changes you from a desire to please yourself 
to always thinking about yourself, to someone that loves Christ and begins to love others. It changes you from a person that's hard, it's so hard for you to forgive others that have wronged you, and yet it changes you to the kind of person that wants to be forgiving because you have been forgiven of so much. And so if someone were to ask you, why or how do you know that Jesus is your Savior? I would say, he saved me. Uh, My life is completely different from what it was before. He did something for me that I can't do for myself. I don't have any power to do what Jesus did. He took a dead sinner, and he raised that sinner into spiritual life. And I would dare say if I were to go around this room today and ask for testimonies from some of you that you could tell hair-raising stories about what you were like before you came to know Jesus Christ. And you have a testimony about how different than you are now. So I would start with that. I would say, this is my personal testimony. It's the personal experience that I have since I have believed. But you know something? Personal experience doesn't prove anything to some people. Because they say, well, your experience is subjective. I need objective proof that Jesus is the Savior. Now, why do they say that? Well, they say it because they've heard all about people's experiences. They see what people, or have heard what people say about what's happened to them. There are some people that say that they saw dead people. There are some people that speak in tongues. There are some people that say that they died and they went to heaven and they came back and they wrote books about it. People have heard these things, and much of that, most of that is really the counterfeit of the devil. And so they may not believe your claim of a true experience with Christ that results in a transformed life. Now, I thought that I needed to start with that because, in a sense, this is what Jesus says to these men. He says, tell John about your personal experience. Tell him what you've seen and heard. But Jesus added something interesting to that. He said, tell John what you've seen and heard. He could have left it at that. I mean, he could have responded to that question like he did the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, when he spoke to the woman at the well, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called the Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. That was a very direct response. And Jesus could have said to these two men that, or these disciples that came to see him, the disciples of John, he said, you just go back and tell John, I am he, and leave it at that. But that's not what Jesus did. He was indirect in his response, and he used the same method that has been used for centuries to prove who Jesus really is. It's the same method that the apostle Paul used when he preached to the Thessalonians, the same one that he preached to the Bereans, And you remember what that is? We just read it in Acts 17. Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. If you want to know why the Bible is so important, it is so important because this is the only place where we can find out who Jesus is. So how do I know who Jesus is? Well, the next appeal is to biblical explanation. I look and see what the Bible has to say about him. We reason from Jesus, uh, about Jesus from the scriptures. Now, one thing that we know for sure about John the Baptist is that he knew Scripture. He was very well versed in that. Reading Scripture, explaining Scripture was a very important thing in the lives of the Jews. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses told the people, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, 
And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. You see, every Jewish child was raised this way. They were raised on Scripture. They were raised to see what the Bible said. They memorized Scripture. They knew how to find things in the Bible. I mean, they didn't have chapters and verses like we have today. But if you ask a Jew, where is that in the Bible? He could either quote it to you, or he could go to the exact place where that's found. Now, we notice among Christians today that we have to have Bibles that have thumb tabs and cross-references, and computers. We have to have smartphones. We have to have Bible applications because most Christians cannot find anything in the Bible. They don't even know where to look. And that's because most churches today don't preach from the Bible any longer. You can go to churches where they don't even bring a Bible to church any longer. And so you know they're not preaching from the Bible, not expounding Scripture. But this is exactly what these Jews learned to do. It's what Jesus, the method he used, the method that Paul used. They knew the scriptures and they got their proofs out of the word of God. And so if you want to know how to prove that Jesus is Christ, that he is who he says that he is, you take the word of God and you see where Jesus has fulfilled scripture. And that's what Jesus did with John. In effect, he's telling these men, go tell John that you have seen and heard everything that the Scripture says about the Messiah. Scripture is being fulfilled. Now we notice here in the response that Jesus gave that he actually gave a combination of Scriptures. And these people knew them. John knew them. These men knew them. They didn't say to Jesus, now, now, Jesus, which scriptures are you talking about? Which ones would you like us to show, John? Could you give us a list of those so we can go through those? No, they knew, and so did John. It was scriptures like these in Isaiah 29, verse 18. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good things or good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And if you look at those scriptures and you combine those, you'll find Jesus did all of those things in his ministry. Scripture was being fulfilled. But Jesus added something to this. There was one thing that he did that was not said about the Messiah. Jesus said, go back and tell John that the dead are raised. And so Jesus didn't just do what the works of the Messiah that were told in the Old Testament, he added something to this. He did more than what Scripture described. I'd like, if you would, to turn over a few pages in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. And uh, this is the same incident that's mentioned here in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, Verses 19 and 20 are essentially the same thing. The disciples were sent to Jesus, and they said, Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? So same time, same place, same station. We're talking about the same story. But I want you to look at what happened immediately preceding that. If you'll look at verse number 11, Luke 7, verse 11. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. 
And much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier. And they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother. So there Jesus raised a dead man. If you look at verse number 18, you'll find out that the disciples went and told John about this. And if you go down to verse number 21, as soon as the question was asked, are you the one that should come? The Bible says in verse 21, and in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind, he gave sight. And so if you put those two stories together, you find that Jesus raising a dead man immediately before these men came from John the Baptist to ask the question, that's not a story that's put here for a gratuitous reason. There's a purpose in this. Jesus wanted them to have testimony of this great power that he had that no one else had. And so all of these miraculous works that we find that Jesus mentioned in chapter 11 and these that we see here in Luke chapter 7 were proofs that Jesus truly is the Messiah. He raised the dead in the same hour, and he proved it all over again by a whole new batch of miracles right in the sight of those men that asked the question. And so all of these miracles done by Jesus in Matthew 11 are what one writer has called parabolic works of Jesus. You understand what a parable is? Jesus often spoke in parables, and Parables are just little stories that have a scriptural truth attached to them. They're lessons that Jesus could teach by telling these stories. And these things that Jesus did are examples of parabolic works of Jesus. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, when Jesus healed a blind person, that was like telling a story. It's like giving an example. And the example is that Jesus is able to open spiritually blinded eyes. That Jesus is the one who can actually open up our heart and enlighten us to our sin and show us that we have need of salvation. The lame are made to walk, and that is an example, a story about how Jesus gives the proper balance to our lives, how he gives steadiness and consistency. Lepers were cleansed, and that's an example of how Jesus purifies us from the corruption of our sins. The deaf are made to hear. And that's an example to show that Jesus has the command to obey. And we listen to his commands and we obey him because he has the right to command. And we learn from what we hear that Jesus loves us. And because he loves us, we don't want to be obstinate. We don't want to go our way instead of his. And then also the dead are raised to life. And that is a very powerful witness. It's an example of how that we that are dead in our trespasses and sins, that Jesus raises us to spiritual life. And it also tells us that one day this body of ours, the believers in Jesus Christ, they will be raised from the dead even as Jesus Christ had power over his own body to come out of the grave. So who is Jesus? Well, we look for objective proof. We look to see what the scripture says. And so when people need objective proof, when they need rock-solid evidence of what actually happened, they may not believe what you say, but the scriptures show all things concerning the Messiah were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And really, isn't this what we've learned through the book of Matthew? This is precisely Matthew's point to prove in every way possible that Jesus is who he said that he is. 
Now let's notice another proof that Jesus gave that he is who he claimed to be. This is the proof in which we appeal to uncommon expectation. Now the last part of verse number 5 says, the poor have the gospel preached to them. That was also a part of messianic prophecy. That's what it means in Isaiah 61 when it says that good tidings would be preached to the meek. In Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 12 it says, I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. So that was a part of prophecy. The poor would hear and believe. Now you think, well, that, that doesn't seem to be such a strange thing that Jesus would have a ministry to the poor. But it was actually unexpected because the Jews didn't treat poor people like, like they should be treated. The Romans treated them wrong. Uh, they were really, Jews were no better than heathen philosophers on their ideas about the poor. The poor don't have God's blessing upon them, so the poor are against God. God's not going to have anything to do with poor people. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees treated poor people with contempt. And the only time in the Bible that you find those people having anything to do with the poor at all was when they wanted to prove how pious and holy they were, how self-righteous they were, because they would come over and they would throw a coin into a beggar's lap or throw it into his little cup that he kept by, by him, and they did that simply as a show. They wanted to show how pious that they were. But was Jesus' ministry like that? No, his ministry was to poor people. He worked with those that were down and out. He found people that were bankrupt. And I mean bankrupt not only financially, but they were bankrupt spiritually. They knew there was no goodness in them, that the only goodness they could have has to be goodness that comes from God. And so he found financially and spiritually bankrupt people, and that's not the way that the Pharisees saw themselves. They did not think that they were spiritually bankrupt. They didn't think they even needed Jesus. Why? Well, they're not sinners. They didn't really believe that they sinned against God. They had their old system of rules that they kept that kept them pure and holy, they thought. Now, here is a difference that we see in Christianity today in the Christianity of Jesus Christ. You may remember when Brother Ekno, our missionary to Southeast Asia, was here, he made a comment. He said, Christianity in America is an enterprise. And I guess we could say that a little bit differently. I could say it this way, that we have entrepreneurial Christianity. And you know who the entrepreneurs are in Christianity? Preachers. Preachers have figured out a way to get rich on the poorest people in their congregations. They prey on those that are most vulnerable. You see, if you promise a person this, if you say, you know something? You can have wealth if you trust in Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, if you become a Christian, then you can become wealthy. If a preacher promises huge returns by sending him money, what do you think poor people are going to do? They're going to send him money. And you have people that get rich on the backs of preachers, and it's really no different, or preachers that get rich on the backs of the poor, rather, and it's really no different than you find in the California lottery. I mean, who is the most likely to buy a lottery ticket? Do rich people go out and buy lottery tickets? No. It's the poor schmuck that needs a miracle. It's a guy that thinks, well, something's going to happen. I mean, a great miracle's going to happen. I'll take my chances, and so I'll buy the lottery ticket, and I'll get rich. And what they do is just prey on the most vulnerable. That's what you have in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That's what it is in a nutshell. It is Christian enterprise. 
So what should have been recognized as a part of the work of the Messiah actually became something that they used against him. They said he, sang, he hangs around with poor people. He hangs around with all of these sinners. And they used that against him. Jesus loved the poor and they didn't. So it was an uncommon thing to have poor people as a part of ministry. So Jesus said, you go and tell John about this uncommon expectation. Uncommon things are being fulfilled. The ministry of the Messiah is practiced because the Messiah is here. And so that was great confirmation for John. Everything the Messiah should be, he was and more besides. And so when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he was right on the mark. His ministry was to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, and he was not wrong when he did. All of the proofs Jesus gave, he was the Messiah. Now that leaves us then with verse number 6 that we need to look at to finish up today. In verse number 6, we find the concluding beatitude. Verse 6 says, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now, do you remember what the meaning of a beatitude is? Beatitude simply means blessing. If you look at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, you'll find Jesus spoke several beatitudes, ones like these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And you'll find several more of those in chapter 5 and also in other parts of the scriptures. But this one says, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And commentators struggle over the application of that verse to John. There are some, like J.C. Ryle, who say that we're doing John an injustice to think that John could ever have doubt. That what this verse actually applies to is John's disciples. They're the ones that had the doubt. They're the ones that had to look and see exactly who Jesus was. They needed to hear directly from Jesus. Then there are others that say, no, this is a gentle rebuke for John. But whether it's intended for John or for his disciples or Jesus' disciples or even intended for us, we always have to trust God. You never doubt what God is doing. Even in the worst of times, when you think that God has deserted you, he hasn't. You always trust him. You never believe that God deserts you. You're blessed when you always trust in God. Do you remember that Job said that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? And he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Jesus says, you are blessed when you are not offended in me. Now, what does he mean by that? What does it mean to be offended in Jesus? He's saying you're blessed when you don't stumble because of Christ. How can you stumble on Christ? Well, the scripture says that Jesus would be a stone of stumbling, that he would be a rock of offense. He was to the Jews because he shut down their self-righteous religious system. People stumble on Christ when they learn that there's nothing at all that they can do to earn their salvation. I mean, people have been trying that for thousands of years. How can I get to heaven? I'll earn my way there. And so they stumble on Christ when he preaches something else that you can't be saved by what you do. People stumble on Jesus Christ when they find out that they can't be saved by keeping sacraments or keeping rituals. None of that saves them. But I think that this text is particularly for those that are saved and have their moments of doubt. C.H. Spurgeon has a sermon on this one verse entitled, Offended with Christ. And he wrote this about 130 years ago, and you would think that what he had to say 
He must have had America in his mind, some kind of premonition about America. So I'm going to close today by giving you a few points of what uh, Spurgeon's sermon, of what he said, and, and as we close this text today, we'll look at this. And this fits in perfectly with what we've already studied in the 10th chapter. And remember, Scripture always fits together nicely. Scripture only has misfits when you misunderstand it. So how are some people offended at Christ or on Christ? Well, there are some who say, I am offended because I'm not happy. I thought that when I came to Christ that I would be happy. Spurgeon wrote, There are not a few who profess to become Christians and who thought that they were always going to be happy. The evidence that they gave of being Christians was they felt so happy. I do not know that mere happiness is any evidence of being a Christian at all, for many are living far from God and yet account themselves very happy, while some of those who live near to God are groaning because they can't get nearer still. Spurgeon also wrote, Carrying a cross before winning a crown is not on their mind. Now, if you want to add a little note to that, You could add the word trial here. I am not happy because God sent a trial into my life. Spurgeon called those acts of providence. People are offended by the acts of God's providence. But here's what the Apostle Paul wrote about trials that come into our life. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And there's the answer to why God brings trials into our lives. When we're weak, they make us stronger. Now, why should you be offended at Christ when he sends things to make you stronger? Why should you be offended at him when he causes you to depend upon him even more? You know, a question has to be asked, where is your happiness found? Is your happiness found in Christ? Or is your happiness found in your prosperity? And I think we've answered that question already. There are some people that believe this. We have a prosperity gospel today because people have chosen what makes them the happiest. What makes them happy is money. What makes them happy is material goods. And so we have a prosperity gospel. Then you have some that say, I am offended because I don't get any respect. There are many Christians that have RDS. That's the Rodney Dangerfield syndrome. Spurgeon didn't write that part. I said that. But here's what Christians say. I don't get any respect. Spurgeon did say, others of them have met an opposition they did not expect from their adversaries, while from their friends they've not met with all the respect that they thought they ought to have. Their friends and acquaintances have laughed at them. Their workmates in the shop have jeered at them. They did not reckon on this. They never counted the cost, and so they are offended with Christ. Spurgeon also said, and I'm paraphrasing, if your religion began rightly at the cross, should you wonder that the cross keeps close to you? Spurgeon is telling us there that the cross is not a place of respect. The cross is where... Jesus died as a criminal. And so if you are going to associate yourself with the cross of Jesus Christ and live for him, you're not going to get the respect of the world. Don't fear because you don't get respect from people. 
You're not blessed, or you are blessed, rather, if you're not offended in the cross of Christ. Thirdly, there are people that say, I am offended because I can't get any recognition. Now, I love this quote from Spurgeon. When they joined the Christian church, everybody was so glad to see them at the first, as we always are when there is a newborn child. But many more new converts have come since then, and the former ones feel that they are not made so much of as they were before, and so they become annoyed and under one pretense or another slink away because Christ's people do not carry them about as wonders and cry Hosanna over them all their days. They're ready to go back to the world and complain, listen, that they have been disappointed with religion and with Christians. Folks, you do not know how many times that I've faced this as a pastor and talking to church members, people that say they're Christians, they have become offended, they have become disappointed because of other Christians. They're disappointed in what some other Christian has done. And they are upset about that as if they are so holy that they deserve to have palm branches laid in their way as they enter into the church. They think, how holy that I am. And so they're always getting offended at people. They get offended at me. They get offended at other Christians. And the reason that they get so offended is because they are self-righteous judges of other people's holiness. And so what happens is they can see everybody else's sin but their own. And so they judge everyone else. They are offended. And folks, when the object of your faith is you... You can be offended at a lot of things. I mean, if it's all about you, you're going to be offended by anybody that tries to live for Christ. If it's always about you and not about Christ, you will become offended. Let me give you one more, then I'm going to stop, and you might be a little bit surprised at this one. This last one is, I am the one who is offensive. Now, see if you can put yourself into this picture. Spurgeon said, Many young Christians are greatly staggered by the ill conduct of professors. I think that there is no worse trial to a babe in Christ than to see elderly Christians walking inconsistently and living in a lukewarm state and even speaking as if they are antagonistic to all earnest attempts to spread the kingdom of Christ. You might be the one who is the cause of offending other Christians. Now, do you understand what this this is about? New Christians are excited when they come to the faith in Christ. They're excited about the realization that their sins have been forgiven. They're excited that now they're on the way to heaven when before they were on their way to a devil's hell. They're excited about this new life that they have in Jesus Christ. But they come across some old seasoned Christian who's just not too excited anymore. He's not excited about God's word, so never bothers to read it. And he's not excited about prayer, so he doesn't bother to pray. And he's not excited about coming to the house of God and worshiping with God's people, and so he just doesn't come. He's not too excited about the cross anymore, and so he quit carrying his. And what's left? Plenty of time to criticize everything and everybody. This is what happens sometimes with the old seasoned Christian who's not too excited about his faith any longer. Now Spurgeon says, if you come across a person like that, here's how you need to look at it. If you are one of God's children, you will not die at their hands any more than Joseph at the hands of his brethren. If the Lord has indeed quickened you with spiritual life, you will press on and work for the master and not be ashamed. So I need to ask you, are are you offended in Christ 
Have you been an offense to others by a negative attitude that you have towards your church, towards members of your church, towards things that are done here? Have you offended some younger Christian because of the way that you act? Jesus said you're blessed if you're not offended or offensive. So he says, now you guys go and tell John not to be offended because I didn't get him out of prison. And tell John not to be offended because I didn't come at this particular time to bring a kingdom to the earth. Don't be offended. Tell John don't be offended because you have been so faithful to him and yet now you have to suffer. But rather the message is rejoice in this because the gospel is being preached. Rejoice because people are being delivered from their sins and they're brought into the kingdom of God. John, the very worst could happen to you. But remember, Jesus Christ is preaching the gospel and people are being saved. And so the kingdom has come to us in the hearts of God's people. It is here in the hearts of God's people. And the question is not, do we look for another? Not, do we look for one to come? But we are to look for the one who has already come and the one who is coming again. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't be offended in his cross. Trust him. Don't doubt him. Never be offended by your belief in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word today, how true words of Scripture are, how they convict our hearts, how they speak to us and show us what we really should be as your people. Lord, help us to concentrate, to stay in your word, to be people of prayer, to be people of the book. Lord, speak to someone's heart today. If they don't understand the gospel of Christ, open that up to them today so they will understand, they will believe. And then I pray for Christians today that you would draw us closer to you and we might have the kind of faith that we need to have, the faith that does conquer the world, that overcomes the world, nothing doubting in anything that Jesus has done. Help us to trust you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.